Please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, come and bring life to the preached word. Lord, take these scriptures inspired by your spirit and pinned to the church in Colossae by your apostle Paul and make them your word for Christ's church this morning. Lord, we need a word from you. We need to hear from you. And it doesn't happen in the power of the flesh or by the wisdom of man. It comes by the effectual working of your spirit. So we would call out to you, Lord God, come now and touch the word of God as it's read and preached to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We are going to look at this little letter to the Colossians. And that letter to the Colossians that Paul is writing to, the church in Colossae, was written to a church plant, very much like Christchurch. We are a church plant. Uh, it was planted in a minor city in mod what's modern-day Turkey today. It's on the banks of the Lycus River. It was not a very big town in the time when Paul wrote to it. Uh, he didn't plant that church. He did not plant the church in Colossae. Most likely his friend and companion who he mentions in this letter, the Gentile Epaphras, the Gentile Epaphras was the church planter. And the makeup of that Colossian church was mostly and maybe even completely Gentile converts to Christianity from paganism. And N.T. Wright, the biblical scholar N.T. Wright, suggests that Paul's concern was that the Gentile Colossian church, so here seems to be the big concern in Colossians, he was concerned that the Gentile Colossian church not view their faith in Jesus Christ as merely a stepping stone as a halfway point to the fullness of Judaism. In other words, there were people who were going around the ancient world. Uh, we certainly see that in, the, in Galatians, and I'm not sure, and the, uh, uh, the scholars aren't sure that there are actually teachers doing this in the church in Colossae, but the concern that Paul has is that they will be taught this false doctrine that Christianity is great, it's fine, the whole Jesus thing is really good. Now you must accept circumcision and come under the law of Moses. And so he seems to, be, seems to be telling the Colossian church, you don't have to do that in order to become a part and remain a part of God's covenant people. And in response to this concern, the potential that people are being taught that Christianity is merely halfway to Judaism and you need to complete the steps, Paul repeatedly invokes, Paul repeatedly invokes the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Jesus is far superior even to the Torah or to angels or anything else. And Paul keeps focusing his readers on the core of the gospel, the very central theme of the gospel. Jesus Christ, the resurrected, uh, the crucified and resurrected Messiah of Israel. That's the core of the gospel. Not circumcision, not coming under Torah, but Jesus Christ, crucified and raised again, is the Lord, the Messiah of Israel. And Paul is saying there is nothing that is superior, nothing is superior to Jesus. Indeed, he is the incarnate God of the universe. And so we get that amazing poetic passage from Colossians 1. We heard it last week, but I'm going to reiterate it. Colossians 1, uh, fifth, beginning at verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. This is high language. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Do you hear the 
the supremacy of Christ. We should indeed in that passage. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Jesus is more than just the embodiment and fulfillment of the Torah, of God's word and wisdom. Rather, Jesus is the embodiment of the God who is the source of the Torah. So here is the point. Hearing all that, here's the point. The good news about Jesus is big. It's big. The gospel is about the whole universe. It's not just about our precious little souls, which they are precious, but in the great scheme of things, it's about way more than that. It's about the entirety of existence. And here is the essence of the good news. Paul says in, first, I mean, in Colossians 1 verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth. Reconcile to himself, what? Just me? No. All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That is a gospel summary. And with that in mind, let's jump into the text that we have this morning, which begins at verse 21, Colossians 1.21. And we encounter here another summary of the gospel, the good news by which God saves us. It's here in verses 21 and 22. If you're following along, here we go. This is Colossians 1.21. He says this, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, when I hear, when Paul says, and you, I want to know, who is this you you're talking to, Paul? Who is the you in this passage? Well, he says, you are alienate, were alienated and hostile in mind. I think we need to apply that corporately and individually. Here's what I mean. Corporately, Paul is addressing his Gentile listeners, the, the converts from Gentile paganism. He's addressing those Gentile listeners. He's saying that you Gentiles, as a group, were alienated from God and hostile towards him. He is saying that as a group, you Gentiles were excluded. You were excluded from the promises and covenants of God. And he describes the state of the Gentiles in even greater detail in Ephesians, which is a letter that bears some similarity to Colossians. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, this is what you were like to the Ephesians, and it applies directly to this passage in Colossians as well, to the Gentiles. He says, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated, listen to this, these, these words here, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of, covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Doesn't sound very encouraging. We were not among God's covenant people before Christ. But then Paul says this. He says that God's hidden purpose, he calls it a mystery. Now when Paul speaks about the mystery here in Colossians chapter 1, he's not talking about like a, a murder mystery. It's not a whodunit. It means the hidden, listen, when he says mystery, he means the hidden purposes of God which have now been revealed. The mystery is 
It, it consists of the hidden purposes of God, which have now been revealed at the end of the age here in the gospel. And here is Paul, what Paul is saying. He's saying that God's hidden purpose from the beginning was not to, ex was not to exclude the Gentiles from the life-giving covenant community with himself, but to draw the circle larger and through the Messiah to include the Gentiles. So if you jump down to Colossians, I know there's a lot of Bible in this. I keep, you, for those of you who are new, are, are new here, we are a Bible church. You're going to hear more Bible on a Sunday morning. You can, you can robe us up and do all that stuff, but you're going to have, a, it's still a Bible church. So we're still a Bible church. And so Paul says in Colossians 1.27, To them God chose to make known how great among Gent the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. The glory of this mystery, which is Christ among you. It says in, it can be translated in or among. And I think the correct translation here in this sense Christ is, yes, among you, the hope of glory. You Gentiles, Christ is not just among Israel, he's also among you, he is the hope of glory. God isn't just among Israel, but in his glorious grace, he is ordained to include the Gentiles. Christ is among us too. And we too have the hope of glory that was given to Israel. Now here's the question. How did God weave the Gentiles into the story of his people Israel. He reconciled us, the Bible says here, in his flesh and blood body through his death. How did God weave us into the story? Was it just did we have to think about the story real hard? Did we go and read some pamphlets? Uh, where maybe we meditated somewhere? No, Paul says he, he does this through, he reconciles us in his flesh and blood body through his death. Did the death of Jesus on the cross. Now, here's the deal. This is critical. I know there's a lot of content here, and, uh, and, and they're good that we can go back and watch this again. Yes, I know you do that every week, don't you? You go back and you say, gosh, that was so good. I'm going to listen to Father, Father Benji again, and I can listen to Father David and Father Shane and Father Ben all over again and share it with my friends on social media. That's what you love to do. Here it, here it is. This is the, here's the critical point. God saved Israel. How did he save Israel from bondage to, in, to slavery in Egypt? He did it through a very real historical event called the Exodus. It's Moses. You remember the Ten Commandments, all that? You know, Moses and the Hebrew children must die. <laughs> so let it be written. So let it be done. Some of y'all are too young to have seen that movie. Uh, you go watch The Prince of Egypt or whatever. You get to see the cartoon version. But anyway, he does it through this real event called the Exodus where God leads his people through the Red Sea and into the wilderness following Moses, his leader. And in fact, Paul applies Exodus language to how God saves the Gentiles. Listen to this. We're jumping back uh, a couple of verses here at Colossians 13 and 14. This is what he says. This is, this is Exodus language. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, Egypt, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Just as God saved Israel through the historical event of the Exodus, he saves us through a very real historical event, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And here is the, here's the crazy thing about that. Here's what this means. God uses the physical death 
of the physical body of Jesus of Nazareth in order to bring salvation. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So the gospel is not, listen, the gospel is not about a code of ethics or morals. The gospel is not about spiritual enlightenment through meditation. You can hum mm, all you want. That's not what it's about. The gospel is not about our feelings about God. No, the gospel is about God putting on flesh in Jesus Christ and dying on a tree. Nailed up like a criminal. Stripped naked, beaten, condemned, spat upon, scorned. And then being raised to life again on the third day. The salvation of the Gentiles and the salvation of your and my soul is about God's actions in the real world. So in one sense, the only way God saves us is through material means. That's it. Jesus on the cross. Nothing in my hand I bring. Only to thy cross I cling. That's our hope, Gentiles, Gentile Christians. God drew the circle wider and let us be in the family with him. And he did it through Jesus. He is our exodus. He's delivered us as a people. And we now are sharers in the covenants and promises of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. And now I want us to take that corporate and move to a more granular individual application for each of us. What is true about the Gentiles before God's action in Christ is also about, true about us as individuals. Here is where you and I, this is, we have to have the correct diagnosis. You can't get healed if the doctor doesn't know what's wrong with you. You have to have the correct diagnosis. Here is our diagnosis. See, I'm, I'm smart about doctor stuff. See how that works? <laughs> Not really. This is what Paul says about us. And you, this is verse 21, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That is the diagnosis. We are alienated. Alienated from whom? Well, from God and God's people and hostile in mind doing even de evil deeds. So the first thing to note here is that you and I, before Christ, are alienated. In other words, we are isolated we do not belong, and we are cut off. And you know what? That is such a powerful word in our moment right now because so many of us feel deeply alienated. In an age of social media and relentless connecti connectivity, the brutal irony is that we feel more cut off, more estranged from those around us than ever before. We are so connected. I, I was reading, um, uh, uh, some, some, someone asked, what do you miss about the 90s? Now, I got to tell you, in my age, the 90s were like yesterday. <laughs> like, what, we're out of the 90s? <laughs> what happened? But what do you miss about the 90s? And one of the people that responded to that question said, being unreachable. Being unreachable. And the irony is that now we are always reachable and we feel more isolated and alienated. While alienation can be experienced and is experienced by everyone or anyone, 
As a pastor, I see an epidemic of acute alienation, particularly among young men. They feel cut off and purposeless. And I think that there is a societal uh, tone that does cut off young men and alienates them, telling them that uh, the way they feel about themselves and the world is intrinsically wrong and evil. And yes, we are fallen, no doubt about it. But that something about being a man is, is in, in and of itself just dangerous and bad. And so estranged from the world around them, they turn in on themselves and seek fulfillment and connection through pornography or video games. Now, I know pornography and video games are not the same thing. Don't worry. Pornography is always bad. Video games are just mostly bad. Through pornography or video games or even drugs. This is a part of the epidemic of uh, opioids that uh, is everywhere, especially in, in rural America. So the response to alienation is practices that are even more, listen, the response to alienation is to Im involve oneself in practices that are even more alienating and self-destructive. You know, I am convinced that the spate of mass shootings that really began with the Columbine massacre in 1999 are the final explosion of nihilistic rage that is the result of this alienation. And Satan has convinced this generation that the answer to this sense of alienation is anything but Jesus. But not only are we alienated before Christ, we are also, also hostile toward God. Prior to Christ acting to save us through his Holy Spirit, you and I, please, I, and this is going to be hard to believe, but I will explain it. You and I were the sworn enemies of God. We were at enmity with God. We are all God-haters before Christ reconciles us. Now, many people would like to say that they are merely neutral about God, or maybe they even have some respect and ad admiration for Jesus, but those people are fewer nowadays. But this is actually not true. We may be neutral and even admiring of the self-constructed idol that we made in our own image, but we are not neutral or admiring of the God of the Bible. For instance, I've had uh, multiple conversations recently about climate change with people. And while I, look, I, I, I really was on a, a science trajectory before I got called into the ministry. And, while I certainly uh, believe that we contribute to environment, our environmental problems through greenhouse gases, etc., this is also true. Listen, I also know that in the Bible, God uses environmental, God uses environmental catastrophes, catastrophes to judge nations. And so, when and so that's only true from Genesis three to Revelation. Other than that, that's not a true statement. But from Genesis 3 to Revelation, God used environmental consequences to judge nations. Other than that, it's not true. And so when we hear about Lake Mead drying up or record high temperatures in Europe, I have said maybe we need to repent. And that comment is not met with neutrality or admiration. <laughs> at best, I get an eye roll, and at worst, it makes people really angry really angry that God would be meddling in the affairs of men 
by messing with the environment. So biblically, in our unregenerate state, we are God's enemies. And apart from the prevenient grace of God, we fall into the description in Romans 8, verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Right now, that hatred that was hidden in the secret places of our fallen hearts is on open display following the reversal of Roe versus Wade. We've seen it. Thousands and thousands of people in this country are vomiting hate and violence directed against God. On July 27th, outside of Beckley, West Virginia, one of the churches that I uh, have some form of oversight over is in Beckley, West Virginia. But outside of that, uh, outside of Beckley, there was a historic uh, 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 log built, but then clapboard framed on the outside Catholic church. And that church was burned down in an arson attack on the evening of June 27th as a means of lashing out against God. You know, I remember, I remember that enmity before I was a follower of Jesus. I, listen, I hated Christians. I hated them. It was an irrational hate. It was not related to anything that they had done. It's just that they represented the God I hated. I remember it clearly as a high school student. I hated Christians. I didn't hate nominal Christians, people like me. I hated the people that really acted like God was real. Those people bugged me. But it was because they confronted me with the reality of the God they served. And that enmity towards God leads to a feedback loop of evil deeds that reinforce our anti-God mindset, which just leads to even more evil deeds. But the good news is this, that through Christ's reconciling work on the cross, we have been totally, for those who receive this gospel, totally transformed. God reconciles us so that we are no longer his enemies, but holy and beloved children. I just, as I was praying about this and thinking about this passage this week, I had in mind that, I don't know if you remember the, the painting of uh, Rembrandt, uh, the Rembrandt's uh, The Prodigal, Return of the Prodigal. Do you remember that painting? Maybe you've never seen it. Go and Google it when you get home. But it's the father standing there, and the son is on his knees, bearing his head in the, against the legs of the father, and the father has his arms around him like that. You're transformed and received as holy and beloved children because of his act for us of great sacrifice and love on the cross. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. How can this be? How can this be? Well, here is the mystery. God has dealt with our alienation, our place of not belonging, by, listen, by allowing us to alienate him, to push him out of the world through the cross. In a 1944 letter from prison, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, God lets himself be pushed out of the world onto the cross. We alienated God. We pushed him out of the world onto the cross. He is weak and powerless in the world, and that is precisely the way, the only way in which he is with us and helps us. The Bible makes quite clear that Christ helps us not by virtue of his omnipotence, but by virtue of his weakness and suffering. The Bible directs humans to God's powerlessness and suffering. Only the suffering God can help. 
Jesus opens his arms on the cross to absorb all of our alienation and hostility. And after we have spent ourselves in hatred, in hatred upon his precious body on the tree, he welcomes us with his outstretched arms of love. And the result of Jesus' reconciling work is that he presents us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Holy and blameless, without the ability to be condemned. Through the cross, you and I are without blemish, and we are free from accusation before God. Through Jesus Christ, you and I can, listen, we can look God in the eye as a loving father and not as a wrath-filled judge. He looks upon you, and he sees he sees his beloved child and not a cringing malefactor. You are his beloved child and not a cringing malefactor. So that if you have been alienated and hostile to God, now you can, you're, you can, all of that, and there's, the, along with that alienation and hostility comes this enormous baggage of shame. God takes that away. Your shame has been taken away. Whatever the enemy would have you feel ashamed about, God has taken that away. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcisions of your uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiving, forgiven us all our trespasses by, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Praise God. And so now Christ is not merely among us as the hope of glory. He is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He takes up residence in your life through his Holy Spirit. So that now we can be given the ability to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we have heard. We have gone from alienated to reconciled. And it all happened on the cross. That is the good news. It never grows old. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.